like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burt Sancy, and we're going to try something new with this episode. Um, before I say what it is, though, I want to tell you who all is here with me. Lisa Murphy is here. Hello. There she is. And Emma Tempest. Hello. And Richard Cohen. Hello. Hi. And so people who have listened before will know who you all are. A lot of people who don't listen will know who you all are. And if they don't, they can Google you so that we don't have to (laughs) spend half an hour telling who everybody is. So um, some of you will remember that a year or so ago, we tried to do a thing called Monday Night Study Hall. And um, I had an article and every week, whoever wanted to could read the article and join me for a virtual discussion. And I was toying with the idea of of bringing that back around during uh, during the quarantine, whatever we're calling this that we're doing. Um, but then I thought maybe instead we would just kind of turn it into a podcast format. So that's what we're going to do. The four of us have read an article together and we're here to discuss it. So um, it, it's a little bit of a departure from the regular format because we don't have a specific quote that we're starting with, but we do have this article. So this one is called... Um, Cautionary Tales on Interrupting Children's Play, a study from Sweden. Um, And it's an article that was published in the journal called Childhood Education, and it was published in 2014. Um, So so, um, I guess I'll start talking a little bit about what it is, and then you guys jump in. But so this, this article does both a literature review about the roles and the ways that adults get involved with children's play um, and what experts say about adults getting involved in children's play. But then the author also did some um, observing in a preschool program. And there's six specific scenarios that that she describes. And um, anyway, so there's a lot to unpack in this. Um, So I guess, Let's can I ask you just to jump in and help me with some of this introduction? Yeah, and, and I'm going to interrupt here for a quick second, and it's probably overthinking, but that's what I do. I'm, I'm 
distracted a little by the fact that you said we read it together and <laughs> we didn't. Right. <laughs> We've all read it in preparation. But but the reason I'm saying that is I as I think that if if we had probably all like read it at the same time, you know, we we might have maybe been more um like had bullet points, right? But right. I love I love one of the tasks Heather gives us is read this and then come together with no planned real agenda and let's unpack it and see what's mm -hmm. going on there. Thank you, yes. <laughs> so that explains any lack of organization. <laughs> that becomes apparent in our conversation. So, um, well, I guess let's start with the literature review piece. Um, what stood out for you guys? I didn't think it was deep enough and I'm not, I'm not I didn't come here to play critic, but yeah. I actually looked up and was like, that's it. That's, yeah. that's it in the lit review. Yeah. Um, I, I would have liked to have read a, a little bit more, uh, but that's, that's my initial input. Yeah. He talks mostly about adult involvement or he reviews the literature mostly around the ideas of adult involvement in children's play and the types of adult roles in children's play. Um, yeah, which of course brought to mind the the series that you and I were were doing was the um, tell me about that I forget the the title um, of the book that Richard. was uh, Richard Cohn's friend Betty Jones Betty Jones yes <laughs> and her book the plays the thing that talks plays about the, the roles thing. of the adult during during play right um, um, I, so I mean. He does, he does a lit review and points out that people have investigated this before. Yeah, so to, um, to sort of nutshell that literature review, um, what, he, what he really is starting this article with is the idea that there are good ways and bad ways for adults to be involved in children's play. And he's defining good or bad by how it affects what he feels like children are learning during that play or the opportunities they have during that play. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah. Summation. Um, I, I locked and loaded and highlighted the potential inappropriate interference by adults in children's play in preschool settings seems to be an overlooked aspect yeah. in the literature, which could perhaps, you know, rationalize why, why it's a little bit short. I, I prefer the word interrupt. I think it, it gets danced around a little bit, wow. but um, you know, I think there's a big difference between participating, interrupting, and interfering. I think we might use them occasionally interchangeably, but to me, the intention behind each of those words could be very different depending on the play scenario that might be, you know, panning out. Sure. He kind of gets into that when he does the review um, in the types of adult roles in children's play. He talks about facilitative roles, which are onlooker, stage, stage manager, co-player, and play leader, which really tie in to the things discussed in that Elizabeth Jones book book and Gretchen Reynolds. Um, and then the precarious roles, uninvolved director and redirector. And I thought precarious was an interesting choice too, because it implies danger. Yes. <laughs> Facilitative being more of a helpful role and uh, precarious being mm -hmm. dangerous as yes. Yeah. So do we, is there anything anybody wants to say about the, the, those roles so far, or do you want to wait until we're into just like those scenarios. Let's just go to the scenarios. Okay, sure. Um, I did, there was one thing I liked when they were talking about, still in this lit review section, um, the precarious role. Um, he says, the last precarious role is the redirector, 
which is exhibited when the adult uses play inappropriately as a medium for academic teaching. And that stuck out to me because that's what we see a lot now is people at using modifiers, um, mm -hmm. play with a purpose and guided play and adult led, that kind of thing. And, it, um, and a lot of the conversations I have with people where we have sort of a conflict about the idea of play is um, uh, how we're defining it. And so for, for me, it's usually that um, you know, it's a choice and children can leave at any time and it's their idea and it's intrinsically motivated. And what they're really talking about is, is this, where they're using play-like things with an academic agenda. Correct. It's just hijacking it. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. So I think to me, the most important question, uh, as I think about the broad field of early educators is why do what motivates the early educators to um, toward some of those precarious or or interruptive um, behaviors? What 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 is their belief about their role, mm -hmm. and what motivates them to um, to do that? Most at most um, of of the lovely early childhood educators I know uh, do the things we're talking about out of the best of intentions. Absolutely. And they don't realize they're doing something um, inappropriate or um, something that is, they think they're, they're helping the children learn and don't understand that in fact, they're doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that I ponder is why, what are those motivations and how do we help teachers um, shift those behaviors? That's a great question. And I think we'll see evidence of that in some of those scenarios for sure, yeah. where it might be more of a reactive response, thinking that they're supposed to be doing something. But if right. we took that moment to like side coach that individual teacher and go a little bit deeper, I think you're right. They're doing something because they thought they should be doing it, but can't really articulate the, the true rationale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's, oh, we're going to say something, Emma? Yeah, but if okay. I, um, no, go ahead. I say, um, a lot of the examples seem to be like routines as well. So not necessarily not reacting, but just reacting in the way they always have done and not realizing that there even is another way to do things. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to do quickly a summary of the, of the um, scenarios because I keep thinking of things I want to say that will be more meaningful maybe after we know what we're talking about. So these are the... Um, these are the, the scenarios that uh, the author observed children and, and their teachers and caregivers in. One is a free play time during arrival between seven and nine in the morning, um, where the children have true free play, it sounds like, in a pretend room, they call it. It's a home-like room where children have access to a collection of various materials, and it looks like five and six-year-olds, maybe, is what they're mentioning here. There's three teachers and 18 children. Um, and in this, this scenario, a little girl named Jennifer is trying on uh, some play clothes, some dress up clothes. And the teacher feels like she could get a better view of herself in the mirror. Um, and, um, and so she starts repositioning and suggesting things to Jennifer rather than just letting her engage with the clothes and the mirror. Um, See, and that's the point, that's the point of intervention is right there. Yeah. <laughs> she says things like, Jennifer, why don't you stand here so you can see yourself? Um, 
get closer to the mirror so that you can see your whole body. And Jennifer stops what she's doing, moves away and begins playing with something else. I wrote in my side margin. I was like, of course she did. <laughs> of course she left. <laughs> right. That's not the only example in these of some of the child just giving up and moving on. I um, like the idea of Jennifer just looking up at the teacher and being like, what? <laughs> and just carrying on. Yes, well, and again, the, the, the teacher's trying to be helpful, mm -hmm. right? So, so her, she's being motivated by um, something really lovely. Mm -hmm. um, but she's also um, of the belief that Jennifer is not capable and competent on her own and needs the teacher to step in. And so, you know, uh, the teacher needs to not only understand um, her own motivations, she also has to understand and take that leap of faith that uh, Jennifer is capable and competent. And also, you know, just sort of going back to Jean Piaget being learning is discovery, mm -hmm. taking that leap of faith that Jennifer will either discover how to see herself better in the mirror or she won't. But <laughs> Jennifer has the control over that. Yep. Well, and, and maybe Jennifer was having like Jennifer was getting everything she actually needed, right? Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the trickier piece of that, the scenario that you're painting out, Richard, and it's, it's spot on accurate, and I don't wanna derail, but I, I'm not, but I'm going to, <laughs> is the importance of the relationship factor because if somebody really was in yeah. a position to be doing immediate side coaching right there, to call somebody out on you're also, yes, you are thinking like good intentions and wanting her to see better. And along with that is also an assumption, whether you're able to articulate it or not, that you don't think that this kid can do it on their own. Mm -hmm. And you got to know somebody pretty well it, it, to be able to call them, not call them out. That sounds negative, but I think you guys know what I'm trying to yeah. say. You have to see both of the intentions and it, it's, yes, yes, you thought you were leading with that good intention, but a, a part of that also includes this piece of the puzzle that maybe you've never allowed yourself to investigate. And later in the, in the description of, the, of that scenario, the author says, uh, refers to a mismatch between the child's and the adult's perspective. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Um, right. Both of you really is um, the teacher assumed that Jennifer wanted to see her whole body when I, in, you know, who knows what I would have done in the moment, it, but just reading this as an outsider, I think, well, if that's what Jennifer wanted, we would have seen more efforts to rearrange things or scoot things or change things. And that's not described in the observation. Yeah, Emma. That's just what I was going to say. When I read it and then saw what the teacher did, I didn't even think of that as what, as that being Jennifer's intention. So even having the mismatch is all very well and good, but having that thought in your head at all when the child could be thinking something completely different and the mm -hmm. fact that she did just walk away maybe that literally wasn't what she wanted and even if you have that question is this what jennifer's trying to figure out just a little bit more observation might be all you mm -hmm. need to do just a little bit more pause before you decide how to respond or yes. to, to interact um and they, pause they, suge is powerful. they suggest things like um modeling your, it yourself if you think that maybe that was her goals was to see her whole self to model and talk about it as you do it yourself and see, I, I, I would I wouldn't I would disagree with that really 100%, yep. yeah because it's, it's still your intention like your mm -hmm. adult agenda like you're you're you've locked and loaded 
in our conversation right now on, and I think Jennifer is wanting to see her own self, but you have no evidence, according to this little scenario, you have no evidence indicating that. Sure. You know, you haven't maybe seen that effort or you haven't seen her struggle or she's looking or her positioning is off or whatever, but, um, yeah. yeah I, for, the, for the sake of me saving face, let's pretend that I paused and observed further and that was what I thought she really wanted. <laughs> so I got up and did a little modeling. <laughs> but then I would be like, well, where did that assumption come yeah. from? So you watched for a little bit more. What did you notice change in Jennifer's body language or in her positioning uh-huh. that made you think that that was, was the ultimate goal? Yeah. And I, I think what she, what he's saying is, if you really felt like you needed to do something here, this would be more appropriate, not necessarily, here's what you should have done. And I appreciate that he's meeting people halfway or where they are, because I would be like, just sit down. This is not <laughs> your party. Did we interrupt? Did I interrupt somebody there? Anybody else going to say something? Oh, I probably did. Nope, that's okay. Um, Episode two, then, the second observation is still in that same pretend room. Um, Five-year-old Jacob is playing with a cash register, and he's pretending to be a shopkeeper. Um, There's fake money. Other children are buying things. Um, They're putting price tags on things, paying money, taking things away. And after a while, the teacher gets tired of the noise of the cash register and um, tells him to stop or asks him to stop. And it says, he continued, although you could tell that he was trying to press the keys more gently. (laughs) I know, I was trying to picture that that too, that poor little boy. Um, More kids are shopping, um, but the teacher just uh, can't handle the noise. And so she takes the cash register and puts it somewhere else. The key part to this is, though, that it wasn't the teacher not handling the noise. It's that she thought it was too loud for children in other rooms. Mm. That blew my mind. And I, I don't know if that is a genuine comment from that teacher like after being asked by the researcher yeah maybe they possibly thought oh well I don't want to come across as as that kind of teacher so I'll just say it was for the other teachers <laughs> just, yeah. It just yeah I, didn't I get think that. that's a common fallback um yeah. when it's really something that is annoying us but we try to put an educative spin on it mm. um now I will also be the first to admit that there are times when a noise in that moment of that day is more than I can handle. And I try to be very open with children and just tell them that. And, but that's not every day. And it certainly is not something that I um, want to be, you know, as part of my practice. But there are times when I'm like, Miss Heather but, has but a to that, I have to put the sticks away today. But to that, that's actually very important. If 99% of the time, it's not a big deal. The 1% of the time when the adult is pretty transparent, hey, you know what, um, right now, this is just a little overwhelming today, is the kids will typically respond a lot more, um, I don't know, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not always a power yeah. struggle. Yeah. And he did try. He did try to make it. I know, I love that. <laughs> Well, and so to me also, it's about the teacher's mindset about uh, her own job. Um, Is her job to serve or is her job to control? Um, And if she understands that her job is to serve, it changes the way that she handles that moment. And to Lisa's point, if she believes her job is to serve, then that 99% of, of the time, she lets it go. And she, she doesn't prioritize her need for peace and quiet. She, um, right, she allows the noise. 
And when that 1% happens and it's just working her last nerve, then as Lisa says, you know, the kids will respond. But if that's all you do, because you're constantly trying to control the situation, um, you're going to have a lot of rebellion on your hands. Mm -hmm. So Richard, will you talk more about what it means when your job, you see your job is to serve? Well, um, for me, um, when I think of the best metaphor for being an early childhood educator, um, it is being the host of an awesome party every day. Um, and so uh, my job is to serve my party guests. Do they have everything they need? Um, what could make their time even more enjoyable? Um, oh, they're building a castle in the block area? Oh, oh, I've got a great book about castles I can grab uh, from my book area and bring it over. Um, or um, what can I get you to uh, help you with that castle? Um, so I'm there to host. Mm -hmm. uh, and be in a position of service to um, uh, help them meet whatever their needs or goals are. But um, in the real world, that's a problem for a whole lot of teachers who think their job is, um, is product-oriented. I've got mm -hmm. to get these kids ready for kindergarten. Um, and so it's my job to teach them X, Y, and Z. That's my job. And if I don't do it, um, I could get in trouble. Um, and so um, taking on that, that um, belief of service is, um, can be pretty radical uh, and, and risky for a lot of folks out there. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good analogy that I, I've heard you say that before and I wanted to, to have, you, have you expand on it again. Thank you. Um, um, oh, go ahead. Um, that um, getting into trouble piece leads nicely into the next one, the episode three about the um, the child running around with the prowlers and ambulance. Yeah, because, I mean you can you can describe it. Oh, I was going to say go ahead and describe it, Emma. <laughs> Let's do episode three. Um, so there's basically a bunch of children playing families as a mum and a dad and kids and that, and um, one of the children calls another child saying that the child is sick. He's a, needs an ambulance to go to hospital. Um, so this child grabs one of the prams and starts running around the classroom with it, pretending it's an ambulance. And the teacher says that it's, it's too loud and it's dangerous to run and she have to put the pram away because it's, it's too dangerous. That's not a party you want to go to. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, especially if you're the guy who's dying and needs to go to the hospital and now they're walking you there. Right. But what it brings up is the subject of risk assessment. Mm -hmm. yeah. So every early childhood educator has to decide where their line is, right? What's too risky and what's risky enough? And I think our job is to help them understand the value of risk and uh, how, to, um, how to modify the situations to decrease, you know, to let children have as much risk as possible um, while still making sure that we're doing our, probably our primary part of our job, which is to keep them safe. But a lot of us get nervous and we interrupt their play because we think we're trying to keep them safe right. um, proactively before they get hurt, rather than laying out the space, talking with them ahead of time about how to stay safe 
and then stepping back and trusting that they'll be able to do so. I think that's another one of our easy fallbacks, um, you know, noise and that's bothering other children from the earlier scenario is one of them that we just, it's just sort of a script we fall into if we don't stop ourselves and make ourselves think through our decisions. Okay, why is this really bothering me and what do I really wanna do about it? Um, but the idea of that's dangerous. I, I, that's one of the areas that I have flipped from one end to the other <laughs> and gone from where I felt like my job was to keep them safe at all costs to now understanding a little bit more um, about risk and my own reaction and understanding why I'm reacting in the way I am and what does the child really need from me. Um, so that, and that's hard to do, I think. Well, and I also think the multiple layers of that, I think there's often a disconnect between what the provider or the teacher themselves actually feel in their own gut versus what their actions are in the classroom environment because they're they'll they'll fall into that worried about who might walk in the door yeah. trap. So they end up shutting stuff down, not because they think that they should have to, but somebody might walk in. Uh -huh. And and I, I love helping folks kind of tighten that disconnect. You know, what is the worst possible thing yeah. that's going to happen? Or if there was an injury, what kind of conversation do I have at the, have to have at the end of the day with a parent? I think that's in the back of my head a, long, a lot of times. Like, do I really want to have that conversation or should I just stop the running in case something happens? And well, I, and what are the proactive conversations I need to be having with parents and mm -hmm. with my supervisors yeah. so that they understand my philosophy, uh, my, my pedagogy, and why things will play out the way they will in my classroom so uh, that they understand that before somebody falls and hurts yeah. themselves. Yeah. They weren't pushed. <laughs> the <laughs> teachers aren't pushing them. Yeah. Um, I think, what did that just, oh, just that um, if you've not read uh, Jared Green's book, It's Okay, Building Resilience Through Physical Place, he has a whole chapter on just what you're talking about, Richard, building that um, relationship and being proactive with families and other stakeholders um, about the idea of risky play or the appearance of risky play. Right. And specific to this scenario, my uh, play therapy lens had to, I, I couldn't not read this without filtering it through depending on what we, of course, we don't know, but if this was a child really acting out something that had happened, whether in the recent past sure. or historically or saw something, and to shut that down prematurely actually can have the complete opposite effect. Um, the shutting down of it could actually be more dangerous than the cut or the bruise that might have happened if they actually had tripped and fallen over the chair. And, and it is sending, again, whether the teacher realizes it or not, a message that what you bring here isn't allowed here. And, and I think it's important to, to, again, have those relationships where you can start pointing that stuff out mm -hmm. and say, you know, it, it is allowed here because it comes with this kid. You might not like it, but, you know, in all honesty, I don't need you to like it. I need you to make room for it. You know, I need you to respect it. And just because you wouldn't do it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just going to bring up, the concept of danger being a thought and that different people have different ideas as to what constitutes the danger of running around the classroom. And that was one of my thoughts, that if they were really, truly acting out something, that gives it even more weight and makes it more credible for you to be letting it happen. Yep, very much so. Another spot where we could practice the powerful pause <laughs> to see what's really playing out. Um, so, the, and this reminds me of 
um, uh, Eric Erickson, this one and actually the one before, um, where children are figuring out, you know, initiative versus what's the other one? Is it shame and doubt? Is the uh, initiative, initiative guilt. versus guilt. guilt? Guilt, yeah. So, so this little guy is trying to work through his initiative of trying out his idea, and he's faced with um, this rejection from the important adults who's with him. And if we think about that through Erickson's lens, um, which which end of that spectrum are we pushing him towards? Um, I think is an important thing to think about too. And when we think about the cash register. That's a trust issue. Like, why did why did you put it in the room if I can't use it? If it's so bad, if it's if it's making me disturb all these other children, then why do you have it here? Why for is me? it even here? Exactly. I think this particular for me, this was the one I had. To me, I saw the the more most layers of of this one that we've just picked apart a little bit. Like, for example. Uh, in my head, if something had happened to where the kid was acting out a, a true life scenario in their own play, you like to think that the relationship would still be there, that the parent or the guardian might have told the teacher, hey, just so you know, so you know, the house the, the house burnt down in the neighborhood over the weekend, there was a fireman and an ambulance, rah, 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 you know, and gathering all that, are we making time for that? So to me, this one had so many entry points of, <laughs> of, of, of potential intervention, not not just the interruption of the actual pushing of the pram. Yeah. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.